want to welcome the live stream members that are watching us, and we're so glad that you're uh, tuning in tonight. Uh, and s some of you just cannot be here. We understand that. And we're just delighted that you're going to join us uh, from home and that we can share together and be, be a family of God tonight and study His Word. It's almost like going into a house with family members and a big harvest table. Man, there's food all over it. And uh, you sit down and you just start eating. And it's just good stuff, man. You got those mashed potatoes and that sweet potato with marshmallows on one side and pecans on the other side. And you got that turkey and you've got the, the broccoli casserole. And you've got all this stuff, man, that you just get to enjoy. Well, guess what? We're going to be in the Word of God tonight. And there's not better food that we can put in our spirit than that. Amen? All right, so we'll get right into the Word this evening. I, uh, I want us to begin with prayer. Tonight we're probably going to cover chapter 4 and possibly get into, if not finished, chapter 5. And so we're moving right through 1 Samuel. If you're here for the first time in this study, we're, we've been in 1 Samuel for three weeks already, and it's been a wonderful time. It's a great book in the Bible. Actually, there is no, really no such thing as 1 and 2 Samuel. In the original uh, uh, manuscripts, it was just Samuel. They, they, later, they divided them. So uh, we're just working through, okay? Let's begin with prayer, and let's pray for those who cannot be with us and those who are uh, suffering from whatever and others who are just uh, going through a difficult time. Father, uh, we're living in an age and a day when, Lord, uh, everybody has requests, everybody has burdens, everybody has needs, and yet we're not the kind of people that we just want to live in that state of need. We want to find joy and contentment and happiness uh, because you are our God, and no matter what the condition is that we're living in. And Lord, that, the only way to do that is by faith. So tonight I pray that you would strengthen the faith of your people. And as we study the word, may, the, may our faith continue to be strengthened. And may we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even in the book of Samuel, we learn about Jesus. And so tonight, Lord, make this a special study. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, you guys all know this. You've, you, if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, that God chastens those that He loves. Now, that's not an Old Testament concept. That's taught in the New Testament after Christ went to the cross. A lot of people uh, like to say after the cross, you know, God's not judging anybody anymore, and that you don't have to worry about that. Well, I agree that as believers, we've already been judged through Christ. Christ was judged on the cross in our behalf. He took our sins upon Himself. He died. He paid the sentence for our sins. So from that angle, I absolutely agree. But to think that God still doesn't discipline and chasten His children is to not read the Bible and the New Testament. And, uh, but yet in the Old Testament, we see it over and over and over again. Sometimes uh, the chastening of the Lord means discipline, and sometimes the chastening, chastening of the Lord means getting what you want. And both are forms of chastening from God. 
And I believe that, that he does that with the lost as well. Paul was clear to say that the lost are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. God's storing up wrath against them. And, and that God handed them over in Romans 1, the ungodly. He handed them over to a reprobate mind. He handed them over to sexual immorality. He handed them over. He gave them what they desired. And that in itself becomes a punishment. It becomes a way of life that never fulfills. And, and so tonight as we study uh, 1 Samuel, we're going to learn more about the chastening of the Lord. We're going to learn about what it means to resist and rebel and, uh, and what it means to submit to the Lord. So let's get started if we can. Verse 1 in chapter 4, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle and against the Philistines. Let me just say this about the first part of verse 1. When it says the word of Samuel came to all Israel, that means that the prophetic word, that when God spoke through Samuel, all of Israel received what he was saying. They heard it as coming from the Lord, and, and Samuel at a very young age had already grown in favor with God and with man. And they looked to him because he heard from God. He was a prophet of God. And then, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. At this particular time in history, if we can just take a moment, I want to You've heard the phrase or the term Philistine probably all of your Christian life. But do you really understand anything about them? I want to do just a little background on the Philistines for a second. I think it's important and it will heighten your awareness of what's happening as we go through the next two chapters. Uh, the Israel was surrounded by uh, not so loving neighbors. <laughs> One of them was the Ammonites. Another were the Moabites, and then there were the Philistines. The Amorites and the Moabites were really of the same general speed as Israel. They all used the same type of weaponry. They were all kind of equal, physically speaking. Now, Israel had the upper hand because of God, right? But, but in terms of just man-to-man -man battle, they were all pretty much using the same kinds of weapon, weaponry and strategic plans. So they were, those were battles that they could handle, Israel could handle. The Philistines were a completely different animal. The Philistines uh, were not using the same type of weapons, and we're going to talk about that. Let me give you this background on the Philistines. The Philistines were an immigrant people from the island of Crete off the coast of Greece. That's where they came from. They were a people who understood the sea, the coast, and they knew how to uh, uh, build ships. They knew how to you know, do trade by ship. They knew how to fish. They, they were coastal people. And, and so for some reason, we don't know why, at least when I, in my study of that researching, I never found out why exactly the Philistines made it from Crete off the coast of Greece to the edge or the coast of the Mediterranean. 
uh, why they came to Canaan. But they did. And they settled in the southwest uh, region of Canaan, which would be uh, what we call today the Gaza area, the Gaza Strip. You're familiar with that term? So the southwest, right along the coast, that's where they settled. And understand this, uh, uh, the name Philistine comes from the Hebrew word Philistia, and the Greek rendering, and the Greeks, of course, they knew the Greeks long before they knew the Hebrews, uh, the Greek rendering of the name was Palestinii, Palestinii, where we get the word Palestine. It actually refers first and foremost to the Philistines who came from Greece or from the island of Crete off the coast of Greece. Uh, and this is spoken of in several places of the Bible. I write this down, those of you who are Bible students. A Amos chapter 9, verse 7. It says, Did I not bring up the Philistines from Kaphtor, C-A-P-H-T-O-R, which is another name for Crete. Did I not bring the Philistines up from Kaphtor? I guess if I were to answer the question, why did they come to, the, to Canaan, God ordered them there. God brought them there. Uh, he wanted them there. Uh, Jeremiah 47, verse 4. Write that down. Jeremiah 47, 4. For the Lord is destroying the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland of Kaphtor, of, the, of Crete. So the Bible acknowledges that the Philistines came off the coast of Greece. Uh, when they migrated, uh, they were there, in fact, prior to Abraham and Isaac. In fact, the Bible records that Abraham had a run-in with the Philistines. And the Philistines, back in those days, it, was, it served both as an ally and an enemy of Israel. And, and Abraham, if you remember, when he and his wife Sarah came into the land of Abimelech the king, he said, tell them I'm your brother. Uh, that was, Abimelech was the king of the Philistines. Later, that, that people would be the Philistines. So, so as far back as Abraham, and it's interesting too, Isaac, uh, when he comes in, he told his wife when they came into that land, they, they, there was a famine in the land of the Holy Land, so they went down southwest to the land of the Philistines where they could, they could make a living. And they met up with the king, and again, it was Abimelech, and they said this, he said the same thing. Tell the king that you're my sister. And so uh, they had this relationship with Israel, uh, or the people of God, at least. Now, around the 13th century B.C., okay, that would have been, Abraham would have been about 2000 B.C. And so, you know, obviously the numbers get smaller, you're moving towards the birth of Christ. So from 2000 B.C., when Abraham and Isaac knew the Philistines, now move forward, if you will, about 700 years, and you come to Samuel. But before Samuel, you come to a guy that we're familiar with from our study on the judges. Samson had his own run-in with the Philistines, and that would have been about 700, 1300 B.C., so they were there before, the, before Israel came into the, uh, Canaan, the Promised Land, and they had established themselves along the coast. But some, for some reason, around 1300 B.C., they moved from the coast inland. And that's when they really came into the area of the Promised Land. 
but they were south of it. They weren't in it, they were south of it. But they were close enough to become a real nuisance to Israel. Now, the Philistines uh, built their civilization on five autonomous cities. Each city had a king, and each king led as he desired. However, when there was a, a national crisis, uh, all five kings would, would join up and work together. Otherwise, they worked as really like, uh, you know, they were despot leaders. I mean, they were wicked leaders, and uh, they did their own thing. Now, from the beginning, God used the Philistines to be both ally and deadly enemy of His people. The Philistines played a pivotal role in the lives of, Sam, of Samson that we just mentioned, of Samuel that we're going to look at tonight, of Saul, King Saul, and of King David. The Philistines are, are key players in those narratives of these great Bible characters. Uh, they were known for their innovative use of iron. Coming from Greece, they had a, a more advanced understanding of technology. They had entered into the Iron Age where Israel and the Ammonites and uh, Moabites were still working with brass as much as they could, but it wasn't nearly uh, the way they used it. It wasn't even as good as the iron uh, that the Philistines used. Their weapons, they had all kinds of weapons that they, that they used to oppress uh, Israel. They were really a thorn in Israel's side uh, while they were there during this period of time that this story we're learning tonight took place. Uh, over a span of about 200 years, uh, they oppressed and even invaded Israel's territory from time to time. Israel just could not overcome the Philistines because of their military uh, uh, strategy and their weaponry. And, and until God said, enough is enough. And that's when Samuel comes on the scene. And God begins to do marvelous things through Samuel and ultimately through David and takes out the Philistines. But up to that point in time, they were a thorn, believe me. Now, here in our text, we see that God has raised up Samuel, who will ultimately use, he'll use to take down the, the Philistines. And there's a good thing because Israel was just shy of becoming subservient to the Philistines. They, during this period of time, there were enough battles that they were losing that the Philistines really had the upper hand and could have come in and just made them their, their, their slaves. And that's when God said, okay, enough's enough. Let's raise up Samuel and we're going, to deal, we're going to deal with this mess. So God's the one that brought them there. And, and he, he knew that they would never turn to him, that they would never worship him. He told Israel before they came into the land, you're going to come into the land and you need to take out the people that live in the land because none of those folks, Amorites, Perizzites, I mean, all of them, none of them will, will serve me. None of them will, will love me. And you'll end up being more like them than they becoming more like you. God knew that. See, again, I, I go back to this, and I just think it, it's, it needs to be repeated often, especially with the day we're living in now and all that we see happening. God knows the past. He was with you in your past. He used your past, and He will use your past to strengthen you today. God is in the now. 
He's present with us. The Scripture clearly teaches in the Old Testament how much more would it be true in the New Testament. Hebrews, that's the whole theme of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is that whatever the Old Testament was when we see God, the New Testament is greater. It's better. In the Old Testament, you have all these typologies, these pictures of Christ. In the New Testament, you have Christ. The Old Testament, it's a Christ is simply a shadow. And they didn't understand all of it. In the New Testament, He's the substance. And so, so believe me when I say that, that we are living in a day now where God is with us. He's, not, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. That's, that's for you today. But He's also, listen now, God is also right now. See, we live in time and space. Right now, God is in the future. Because He's not bound by time and space. God is in the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. Now let me just make it personal. He's in your past, your present, your future right now. He knows everything there is to know about you. He loves you unconditionally. He sent His Son to die for you. You say, how much does God love me? He loves you as much as He loves Himself. How do you know that? How much was He willing to pay for your freedom from sin? He paid for your freedom through the death of Himself. When Isaac looked to Abraham, who was about to walk up to the top of Mount Moriah, and he was carrying the wood, and he had they ready to go up and make sacrifice, and God had already told Abraham, you're going to sacrifice Isaac. And Isaac says, Dad, we're going up there, and, but where's the sacrifice? We've got the wood, we've got everything we need, but where's... And Abraham's response was, in, in Genesis 22, God Himself will provide the sacrifice a shadow of Christ to come. And you and I live on the backside of that. Christ went to the cross, now we understand what was a mystery in the Old Testament. Isn't that wonderful? But God is with you. He's always been with you. He's always seen. He knows everything. You say, but well then why did He let that terrible pain and that terrible tragedy happen in my life? Because we chose to sin against God. And because of that, God allows things to play out to a degree. He allows sin to exist for a season. He allows us to suffer. But listen, the Bible says that when Jesus, the Son of God, when God, who created the heavens and the earth, came in the form of man, when He came... He identified with our weaknesses. He understands our sorrow. He understands our pain. He understands our tragedies. And He bore that on Himself on the cross. There's never been a time when something has happened to you beyond God's sight and beyond God allowing it to happen 
Never. Never. And God will use it for his glory if you will allow him. He will take what has happened and he will use it. Why? Because he's already in the future right now. And he knows how the past is going to be used for the future. He knows how the present will be used for the future. He knows every, the Bible says in Psalm 139, he already knows the number of days that you're going to live on the earth before you ever live the first one. Ephesians says that God, before the foundation of the world, chose you. He knew who would be saved. He knew who would be saved. He knew who would reject him. And, and so the Philistines are playing a part here. They're just playing out a role for Israel. And it was a role of great hindrance, a role of, of pain and oppression that Israel had to put up with because of the Philistines. And God was the one that brought them over to do it because he knew Israel would need it. Before they ever made it to the promised land, he knew they would need it. They'd need the pain because that's the only way they would turn back to him if they're in trouble. And they did. And so now we're in a period of history where we see verse 3, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So now they're questioning. Where was God when we need Him? Why did He let this happen? And these are the elders. These are the spiritual leaders of Israel who are asking these questions. Let us, now they're going to, now because of the defeat, and now because they don't understand what's going on, instead of stopping and inquiring of God, why did you allow the defeat today? Because the reality was, when God was with Israel, they won victories. They didn't lose. And when they turned from God, they lost. So you'd think the elders of all people would know, okay, we know, we know why we lost. But they were so stubborn that they make a decision to do something that is foolish. Look what they said in verse 3, latter part of the verse. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from, the, from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. They had to be there. The priest had to accompany the, the, the Ark wherever it went. And uh, so here's the, here's, the, here's the great plan. First of all, we notice that the elders of Israel, at least they gave God credit for the, their defeat. Uh, they had an understanding of God's sovereignty over their nation. Why did the Lord allow us to be defeated. So they're at least acknowledging God is sovereign, right? But while they asked the right question, they didn't, get, they didn't inquire to get the right answer. Instead, they took matters into their own hands, and they treated God like a genie in the bottle. The bottle being the Ark of the Covenant. If we take the Ark of the Covenant out on the battlefield with us, Surely God's power will overwhelm the Philistines. Now get the picture. They have not sought the Lord. They're seeking the ark. Instead of seeking the God of the ark, they're seeking the ark of God. You see the difference? 
The Ark of the Covenant was the representation of the throne of God in Israel, kept in the most holy place of the tabernacle. The people never saw the Ark except when it was being transported, moved. When they would pack up the tabernacle and move, then they would get a chance, a glimpse. But only the high priests entered and saw the Ark, and only once a year. The elders wanted to take this representation of the throne of God out of the Holy of Holies, where it has never been moved except when they were moving, transporting, and let the ark win the battle for them. That's what they're thinking. Now, they treated it like a good luck charm. And before we look down upon the Philistines like they're some kind of weirdos, we do many things just like that. If I am faithful to go to church, then God will be pleased. Not realizing that it was the work of Christ, the perfect work of Christ, that pleased the Lord in your behalf. It's not your work. It's the Lord's work that pleases God. Some people wear little things around their neck, you know, a cross or whatever. And if you have one, I'm not saying that anybody who wears it is it's wrong. I'm saying if you think that that little cross is protecting you, that's idol worship. That's idol worship. If you carry some little card in your wallet because you think that brings good luck to you or whatever, like I shared with the congregation the other, the other Sunday that renting that house here in Vero for the first year, and the owner was, was a Catholic woman, and here she comes and says, hey, can we bury Saint such and such in the yard so we can sell the house? It's idol worship. And I'm not, listen, I'm not, I'm not belittling the woman. That's what she was taught. That's all she knows. But we as God's people know better those of us who've studied the Bible, who open ourselves to the whole counsel of God, we should know better than that. And so, so, so the Philistines really are a reflection of Christians today in many cases. What they didn't consider was the fact that God used them to keep Israel humble. Israel lost 4,000 soldiers and that didn't humble them. What did they do after losing 4,000 soldiers in battle? The priests went out and said, let's come up with a better plan. Let's, let's get the ark and bring it out here. That's not humility. That's arrogance. Now they're going to show off God as if the ark is the answer. Now, this wasn't the first time the ark was ever used in battle. When they first entered the promised land, they put the ark in front as they marched the people seven times around the city of, of, what city was that that fell down? Jericho. Jericho. The ark was used. And then there's the time when <clears throat> Moses told the priest to lead the ark, <coughs> excuse me, into battle against the Midianites. And even after the incident in Samuel 4, Saul, uh, we're going to study this in chapter 14, Saul brought the ark into battle. And then later in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, David brings the ark out before the people. So it's not like this has never happened, but the difference here is the elders are believing 
that it is the ark, this, this piece of wood that's been decorated that the, holds the power. No, the reason the ark was holy and the reason the ark had power was because of who was upon it, who was with it, God. That's why you don't put your power, you don't put your trust or your hope in healing or the healing power of God. You don't trust in the healing power of God. You trust in the God who can heal. You see the difference? If you put all of your faith in the healing power of God, what happens when He doesn't heal? Your faith just got rocked. And by the way, that happens. God doesn't heal everybody. I don't like saying that, but it's in the Bible. And, and many of God's great people suffered. I mean, Isaac, one of the patriarchs, laid in bed for like 11 years, blind, feeble. This idea that somehow if you walk in God, man, it's just all easy and downhill and you're going to prosper in every way and you'll never get sick, and that's a lie. That is a man-made doctrine. That is not the Bible. You don't put your faith in the healing power of God. You put your faith in God who can heal. So you always ask God for healing. Be careful in nothing but in everything with, uh, with supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. Come to God. Ask for healing. But whether God heals or not doesn't change my position on God. You'll be surprised how much it changes the position on God when you believe in the healing power of God. Because then what happens when God doesn't heal, what do they say? Oh, you didn't have enough faith. Oh, you, you've got some sin in your life. That's why you didn't get healed. Um, is that what the scripture teaches? No, it is not. And so we got to be careful there. We, gotta, we can be just like the Philistines, and in this case, just like Israel who's now placing their hope and trust in a symbol of God, a representation of God, instead of God himself. I love what Spurgeon said, the great preacher. Instead of attempting to get right with God, these Israelites set about devising superstitious means of securing the victory over their foes. In this respect, most of us have imitated them. We think of a thousand inventions, but we neglect the one needful thing, they, forgot, they forget the main matter, which is to enthrone God in the life and to seek to do His will by faith in Christ Jesus, period. That's the answer. There are plenty of us, though, that like these elders, when we find ourselves in defeat, we begin to invent all sorts of reasons why God didn't give us the victory, except for the one true reason. We've drawn away from God, not towards Him and we need to come back to him. Verse 5, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Wow. Uh, that, now that would have been cool to see. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant that's been kept in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. They bring it into the camp of the soldiers of Israel who lost 4,000 in battle, and the whole camp goes crazy. Woo! What a high. 
I mean, if there was a church service that had a resound, that resounded, the earth resounded because of their worship, and you drove by, you'd go, wow, man, God's alive in that place. Woo, God's working in that church. That's awesome. Well, uh, you might have thought, man, this Israel has a powerful relationship with their God. But for all the appearances, it was really nothing. All the noise and excitement meant nothing because it wasn't grounded in God's truth. What Israel couldn't see was that they had become just like the pagan nations that they looked down upon. They too were worshiping a symbol of God's presence rather than God himself. God wasn't having it. Now I want you to see the picture here. First, the spiritual leaders come out of the battle and say, why did the Lord not give us victory? But they didn't wait long enough to ask him to answer. They just went ahead and made up their own decision. Let's get the ark. That'll, that'll take care of business for us. They bring the ark in the camp. Now all the soldiers, whoa, this is awesome. They still haven't turned to God. That What looked like a great church service happening, God wasn't in it. Emotion alone is not what God wants from us. He wants hearts that are fully devoted to Him, that trust in Him, that call upon Him in time of great need. And that's the one thing Israel was unwilling to do. God is a great God. Look at verse 6. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? I mean, they're even thinking, wow, what's going on? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. We've never heard anything like that. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. They would know that because they were there at that time. And it was passed down to them, the story of, it, of Moses and all. And, 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 and lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you, be men and fight. Okay, so now they're really afraid. But then what happened really is these guys become so desperate in the situation that they threw every ounce of energy they had in the battle. Instead of wandering away and being, you know, running from the battlefield, they were like, what are we going to do? Let's do everything we can to win this battle. We're desperate men. Let's go to battle like desperate men. And that's what they did. And verse 9 says, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. There's... What movie was that with, with Gibson, Mel Gibson? Braveheart. There's the Braveheart right there. That's the, that's the challenge to the men right there. What can we learn from the Philistines? Here's what you can learn. Uh, courage. Courage and persistence can win battles regardless of what side you're on. There's truth in that. There's a lot of people who don't love God, who are not God-fearing, and they're winning battles every day. In the business world, in the financial world, they're winning battles. 
their persistence, their courage. It's getting it done. Now, it's not lasting, and it doesn't bring peace and contentment, but that's where they are. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. So the entire army of, the, of Israel was dispersed. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died all in the same day. Just the night before when the ark came into the camp, whoo! And they found out real quick, it's not about the level of your emotion. It's about the faith of your heart that wins the battle. And so from a resounding shout in the camp to a resounding defeat on the battlefield, you talk about a great fail. There were three reasons for the great defeat. Write these down. Number one, the Philistines fought with the courage of desperate men. We already talked about that. Number two, the Israelites didn't enter the battle ready to fight because they thought God would win the battle for them. They did not come into the battle with their focus on the right things. There's nothing wrong with saying God's going to give us the battle, but we're going to do all that we can because God's sending us into the battle. Let's go prepared in the battle and then trust that God will bring the victory. And then thirdly, God will never bless a superstitious belief in the power of the ark instead of the power of God, or the power of an idol instead of the power of God himself, or the power of a representation of God, whether it be a cross, whether it be a Bible sitting on the, on the coffee table. If you think that that little Bible, that family Bible on the coffee table is somehow protecting your home, is providing whatever, making the house, no, it is not. It is God Himself in your heart that makes the difference. We too can make the same mistake believing that if God is with us, we don't need to try so hard. We think if God's on our side, the work will be easy. That, that, that is hardly ever the case. Isn't that true? Hardly ever works that way. It seems like the more we love God, the more we see God blessing, the more we have trials and struggles. And that's part of life. Amen. Amen. Those are opportunities to grow in the Lord. That's what those are. You don't run from them. You go ahead and say, Lord, get me through them. Lord, let's do this together. What, what do you want me to do about it? Lord, I'm just going to join you as we go through this mess. And it's amazing how God then begins to grow in your heart and your faith strengthens and you come out a stronger person than ever before. Amen? Amen. Now you think about that. Look back in your life at the times when you went through battles and you trusted. You didn't see how in the world you're going to come out of it. And God brought you through it, and you are now today stronger because of that. Now, I'm not saying you're ready to go back through it again at this time in your life, but you thank God for it, and you're not about to give it up. You want to re always remember that, don't you? You're thankful to God that you went through that. That's when you grew. Amen. So we need to be careful and not fall into the trap of the, of the Israelites, where somehow we just think because God's with us all the time, I don't do anything. Oh, no. The Bible says work out your faith, your salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean that work out your faith, look, work out your faith through fear and trembling. 
where somehow my faith in God, my salvation, is contingent on whether I work it out. That's not what it means. What it's saying is that those who are truly saved, they will persevere. They'll work with fear and trembling for the Lord. They know they're saved. There's not a question of salvation. But I'm not going to just lay back, kick back on my gluteus maximus and do nothing. I'm going to be strong for the Lord. I want to be a warrior for God. I want to be strong and courageous, trusting that God will bring me through whatever, and God's given me a mission. He gave me a seed bag, and I'm going to start throwing that seed everywhere I go. Amen? So, God is a person, not a genie, who can be summoned at the whim of man's desires. The loss with the ark was far greater than the loss by their own hands. By the way, seven times greater. The loss of the ark was seven times greater than the loss of all their men. Now, interestingly, in the late 1970s, a five-line inscription was found on a grain silo in the ruins of Isbet Sarte. And when deciphered, it was found to contain a Philistine account of this battle that we just read about. The capture of the ark, even specifically mentioning the priest Hophni, or Hophni. Isn't that interesting? This is the earliest known extra-biblical reference to an Old Testament event. Wow. So this is not a question of did it happen. You know how you watch the History Channel, and they're going to explain the Bible to people, and of course they have some, some PhD, which means in this case Pentecostal hairdo at best. And this guy's going to get on there, and he's going to tell you, that uh, it really didn't happen the way. This is more, more just a story that was passed down like folklore and blah, 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 blah. They actually have physical evidence of this battle. You're going back to 1300 B.C., or actually before that. That's amazing. Now, the worst, what was worse than, than the battle uh, being lost to Israel was the loss of, loss of the ark. Uh, you and I are so capable of making idols out of things. The ark itself was never to be just a thing. The, God created the ark. In fact, the entire Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was a picture of heaven. Everything in the Holy of Holies, all the materials that they used, everything was a reflection of heaven. Even on the ark itself, the cherubim with the wings pointing towards one another. It's all a picture of heaven. It's giving hope and meaning to Israel that there's something greater ahead. And yet they treated it like it's the power. Remember the raiders of the lost ark trying to find the ark because whoever finds the ark is going to have the power? Ridiculous. No, God is the power. Amen? We're not seeking the ark of God. We're seeking the God of the ark. Amen. Let me share some encouraging news with you. Though the ark of God was captured, the God of the ark was still on his throne in heaven. On this bad day, when they lost 30,000 men, when the high priest died, when his two sons died, when the ark of God was hauled off by the enemy, God was still firmly seated on his throne. In America's worst day, God is on the throne. Please remember that. 
please don't let the enemy sow seeds inside of you of fear where somehow you just don't see a way out. Are you kidding me? If we will not find ways with our mouth and our actions to bring glory to God, guess what God will do? He'll bring glory to Himself. And on this day, the, the, the Israel did not bring glory to God. They brought a symbol of God, hoping that somehow, like a good luck charm, it's going to win the battle for us. But God's not done. God will still bring glory to Himself, even when we fail to. And so this is an interesting uh, part of the story uh, as we look here. Verse 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. That was a traditional way of presenting bad news. You came as if you were in bad news, and then you brought it back and you shared it. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Interesting now, Eli has already been told twice, first by a man of God that's not even mentioned. He's autonomous to us. We don't, or we don't know who he is. Uh, Anonymous, not autonomous. But, but then also, Samuel, the boy, told Eli, your, your family's going to be taken out. You're no longer going to be priests. But to prove to you that that's going to happen in the future, God's going to do something in your day. Both of your sons will die on the same day. Eli knew that. And yet, listen what it says. He was sitting on the seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for his sons? No. His heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out, wailing that the ark was taken. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? And the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? And he, brought, he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned, look at this, the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. What a postscript at the end of a day. Your final thought as the high priest in your 40 years of serving, the ark of the Lord has been captured by the enemy and then die. That reveals the level of judgment that God was bringing to Eli because he would not respect the ark and the tabernacle by keeping his sons in line. God demands that we walk in holiness. He wants us to walk in purity. 
He wants us to be a reflection in this world of his, who He is. Be holy as He is holy. That doesn't mean be perfect. You're not a perfect person. I'm not a perfect person. It does mean that how you live, how you speak, how you act in this world either brings glory to God or it doesn't. And Eli, at the end of his life, is now seeing, I have not pleased the Lord. I didn't treat holy the things of the Lord. According to an unfounded Jewish tradition, this is very interesting. Again, this is not the Bible, so I don't treat it like the Bible. This is just a, a Jewish tradition that was passed down. That this unnamed messenger from the tribe of Benjamin, it does say that, that he's from the tribe of Benjamin, was a young man by the name of Saul. So that's possible, but don't, don't treat that as Bible. It's not. We don't know that from the Scripture... So take it with a grain of salt. Then the messenger arrived. He found the high priest, Eli, sitting on a seat, watching and waiting for the news from the battle. His heart trembles. He probably knew the ark should not have been taken to the, from the temple, but the priests or the, the uh, elders wanted to take it, and now he gets the bad word. He didn't even stop them and say, No, you will not take the ark. What we will do is seek God. He's the high priest. He's the mediator between God and people, and he didn't do his job. And so he ends up losing his life over it. And when Eli got word that the ark had been taken, he fell over and died. Now, verse 19, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead... She bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. So when Phineas's wife heard the news of the death of her husband, her brother-in-law, her father-in-law, a slaughter among the soldiers of Israel, 30,000 lost their lives, a lost battle to their arch enemy, and the capture of the Ark of the Covenant all on one day, her anguish was so great that it sent her into premature labor. And about, verse 20, and about the time of her death, I mean, this woman is in such anguish, she's going to, anguish, she's going to die. And uh, the women who were attending to her as she was giving birth said, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son, which would have been the highest thing that a woman could have as a son, to carry on the name of her family. But she did not answer or pay attention. I mean, she is completely overwhelmed by the events of the day. Even in the course of childbirth, she's overwhelmed by the fact that Israel has lost the ark. And here's what she said when she named her child. She named him Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So there was not this maternal joy. Could you imagine a mom giving birth? And I can because I was present when Rini gave birth to our four children. And I know the relief that she felt as soon as the children were born. And then the overwhelming sense of joy as the doctor placed each of those children in her arms and the overwhelming sense of, of joy that she felt in that moment. This woman never had that moment. 
She was so overwhelmed by the fact that Israel had lost the ark of God, the presence of God, the glory of God had departed Israel. To her, the glory of God displayed by the Ark of the Covenant had departed from Israel. And, 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 the, and the reality is, that's not really true. The, the, the glory of God left Israel way back. Remember what we read early in the book of Samuel? That in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. Israel left God, and so God was not among them. He was not their God. He was, they, were, they didn't want Him to be their God. And so they were going through the motions of a religion, but they really weren't trusting in God. So that's not the day that the glory departed, but that's what she felt. That's what she thought. The question arises, how could God allow something so terrible to happen all in one day? Well, first of all, He allowed it as a righteous judgment upon Israel as a nation and the family of Eli. They simply received what they deserved. That's really what was happening here. Israel's getting what they deserve. He's giving them what they wanted. They wanted to have God in a box that they could pull out whenever they need to. Like many Christians today who don't pray, who don't study the Word, but when they get in trouble, let's get God out. And we treat Him like He's some kind of a, a product and when we're done with him, we put him back and go back to our lives. In that case, the glory of God has departed. And you can be faithful in your attendance and you can sing hymns and praise songs and look the part and give a testimony and all that stuff and still not have the Spirit of God working vibrantly in your life. You're just going through the motions. In fact, it's possible that some of those aren't even saved. God's Spirit has never come into you. You just came right into a religious experience. You've been carrying out the traditions of man, trying to find joy and peace through the traditions of man. That's a sad place to be. Amen? Secondly, God allowed it as a correction to the nation so they would stop trusting in the ark of God instead of trusting in the God of the ark. And lastly, while all the, this seemed terrible to man, it wasn't terrible to God. He wasn't wringing His hands in heaven because of the, the devastation of this day. He's not worried sick about how things are going to turn out. He's not worried about His reputation or even worried about the reputation of the Philistines who captured the ark. Uh, instead, this was all just a prelude to God beginning to show His glory in a way that He couldn't show if this didn't happen. And therein you see the sovereignty of God. Everything that happens, happens for His purposes, not ours. First and foremost, you were created to worship Him, to bring glory to Him. So when you get all bent out of shape and you get sideways over things that happen that are so devastating and so hard, and you just get so angry at God and you just are like, where's God when I need Him? And I can't believe He allowed this and blah, 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 blah. Let me tell you, I'm going to show you how ridiculous that is. What I hold in my hand is a little coffee stir, really small hole. That's what you're looking out of with everything you see. And you're making such a broad statement about God 
through this, where God sees everything, past, present, future. Who do we think we are to tell God where he's messed up and what he hasn't done the way we think it ought to happen? Here you are looking around, man, I, I just don't understand it. Uh, what, what's wrong with God? You know how foolish you look? That's ridiculous. And, and that's, what, that's what you and I need to take away from this chapter. This is it right here. We, we need to realize God's bigger than us. God's sovereign. God has a plan. God's never slipped off the throne. He's fully in charge today, just as he was four years ago, eight years ago, a hundred years ago. God's never slipped. God still has a plan. He's in your past. He's with you in your presence. And he has a future for you. Amen? What time is it? Okay, let's just go a little further and then we'll stop. Chapter 5, when the Philistines captured the ark, this is kind of funny, this, we're going to end on a really funny note. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon is their, one of their gods. They, they, they believe Dagon had the body of a man and the head of a fish or something like that and that Dagon was the father of Baal. I mean, you talk about weird, crazy worship. These folks were caught up in it, okay? So they got this temple, this shrine to Dagon. They got this statue of Dagon in the temple. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the house of Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So a statue is fallen over and is worshiping or bowing before the other Ark of the Covenant, which is a representation of God to the people, the power of God, the presence of God. But when they rose early in the next morning, so they, they, well, they, well they, they set him back up. Well, somehow Dagon messed up, so we're going to put Dagon back up on the platform. He'll be fine. And uh, the next morning, they rose early in the morning, and Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. <laughs> so get the picture. The Philistines have routed the Israelites and are no doubt jub you know, jubilant over their victory. This, this false sense of confidence led them to place the ark of the one true and living God in the presence of a false idol that cannot speak, cannot hear, cannot act, can't do anything. It's even less than the people who made it. And they're treating this, this false God like he is greater than the God of Israel. And God's like, well, Israel didn't bring glory to me. And the Philistines aren't bringing glory to me. So I'll just bring glory to myself. And God himself took out Dagon. <laughs> and I'm sure he didn't even have to lift a finger to do it. God just went, <laughs> and Dagon, Dagon falls over. Dagon, by the way, again, half fish, half man, father of Baal. And Baal, of course, is a false god too. I mean, all these false gods that they worship. And they're, they're putting these up against the one true and living God. But after the first night, Dagon didn't fare so well, so the next night it gets even worse. And, and they're just, you'd think that through these experiences that they would get the picture 
maybe the God of Israel is greater than our God. But they didn't. They would just set their God back up. After the second time, they glued him back together and set him back up. I mean, these folks are stubborn. And God knew it long before he knew they would never turn to him. So God said, I'll just bring glory to myself. It reminds me of a video I saw, a hilarious video. I, I don't mean to show disrespect to people. I, I just, but I want you to understand how far we will go when we've been taught uh, error, when, when we've been taught heresy, and how foolish it makes us look when we drift away from the moorings of God's Word. In this video, it's some Latin country, and it's a cathedral, a little tiny cathedral in some Latin village, and these folks are bringing in uh, a statue about four foot high of Mary, and they've got her on a platform, and there are four men who have set the platform on their shoulder, both sides, front and back. And they've got the, the, the band playing some kind of a march. The place is jammed with the people who are just overwhelmed in their worship of Mary. And they're marching in to the beat of the drum, these men. And somehow, one of the edges of the platform began to slip off the shoulder of one of the men. And it tilted. And Mary, all four foot of her, came tumbling down to the ground. And the people went crazy, gasping, screaming. You would have thought someone died. You would have thought the president of that country was assassinated. You would have thought that the queen of heaven had fallen from heaven. A statue. And what made matters worse, the guy who dropped it, she's laying on the ground, and her head came off. And the people, when, they, when he picked up the head, the people, oh, they're about to have a coronary because Mary doesn't have a head now. They, he takes the head, and they pick up the statue, put it back on a platform, and he sets the head, just sets it up on top of the platform. And the people are freaking out over plaster of Paris, over ceramic, hollow ceramic figurine. God help us in the church of Jesus Christ that allow traditions of men our own little ridiculous things that we think and we do that replace the one true and living God in our lives. God help us. God help us. The things that we get upset over when they're not that big of a deal. The things that we just can't seem to, because we put such a faith in that thing and now that thing's not there anymore. And Oh my goodness. I remember when I was pastoring in Palm Beach Gardens and we had grown to the point where we needed to knock out the walls. And so we actually went into a, a time, a, a building campaign, and we raised the funds, and 
we, we knocked out the walls so that we could expand. And to do that, then we, the next thing was we were going to get rid of the, the church pews because now we had these side sections that were much larger and we didn't have enough pews for all those sections. And we thought, let's just use pew chairs, cushion pew chairs, and we'll, we'll take out the pews. They've served the purpose, but now it's time for the pews to go. I had a couple come to me. You would have thought that God slipped off the throne and the church was about to go to hell. And, and he came to me and serious as a heart attack, Pastor Greg. Our parents dedicated that pew many, many years ago. And you're just disrespecting. And, and I, I told them, I tried to explain, it, was, it, it didn't matter. I, 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 okay, what's more valuable? Us sitting on a chair and worshiping God or worrying about the chair we're sitting on to worship God. And they left the church. I mean, they left the church over it. Hung up over a pew chair because their family member had purchased that pew. Well, we can be the same way. We're part of Virile Bible Fellowship in its infancy, and one of these days the Lord's going to bless us with a facility. Praise God. And you're going to go in that facility as we purchase it, and you're going to help work on it. And we're going to make it everything God wants it to be for the glory of God, right? And you're going to use your hands and your hammer, and we're going to work together. We're going to accomplish something for God, and it's going to be fun. And, and, but, but God forbid that in 20 years, when the next pastor says, you know, let's, let's change what they did 20 years ago. We're going to do something different with this. And some of you are going, God forbid that we get there, amen? Honestly, that we not get caught up in traditions of man, but that we always worship the one true living God, not the things of God, amen? All right, we're going to stop there, and we'll keep going next week, and uh, we'll finish out this chapter. It really gets funny because... Um, they don't turn to God, so God's like, I will be glorified. So God brings, uh, uh, I'm not going to describe it to you here but uh, tonight, but, but God just brings a lot of physical issues upon the people, in, in the Philistines. And, and so we're going to pick that up next week. Let's, let's put God first in everything, and let's not allow other things to take his place in our hearts. Amen? Father, we want to thank you that tonight, even by paying attention to how Israel handled the, the, the defeat and how the Philistines treated you, how it's easy for us to, to commit the same kinds of sins. And so, Lord, we're praying that you would just give us understanding that we would be Christians that truly walk in the beauty of spirit life, that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit each and every day, and that we would follow the Spirit which goes where He pleases, and He wants us to go with Him, and that we not fall into the category of this is the way it has always been, and this is the way it should be. God, may we be Your people, 
may you not just be our God for the way we see you. Oh, Father, grow us. Let us see a bigger picture of our God. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.